Hi, this is episode 19 of K-Ray Reads to You. Today we have part 1 of chapter 5 of Absolute Zero by Helen Cresswell. Oh, please remember, I made these recordings years and years ago. That's why they sound a bit funny. Hope you like it anyway. Chapter 5 Jack felt lonely and left out now that the competition entering was well underway. He did not believe that the rest of the family would win every single thing they entered, as they themselves did, but he did believe that they would win quite a lot of them. Everyone but himself was more or less a genius, and it stood to sense that only if they came up against other geniuses would they have any difficulty. The Bagthorpes spent a lot of time holed up in their rooms, even in the normal course of things, because of having so many strings to their bows. They practiced instruments and read French novels, and held radio conversations with names like Carlotta from Madrid or Anonymous from Grimsby. They painted portraits and wrote poetry and made calculations and did judo. Now that they were in the grip of this new mania, however, it seemed to Jack as if the only time they ever came out of their rooms was to feed. Even at mealtimes, the conversation was restrained and wary. Everybody was afraid of giving something away. They didn't even make jokes anymore, in case somebody else had found a joke competition to go in for. Jack knew it was hopeless for him to compete with the other Bagthorpes. He had tried to write a slogan, because he didn't like to give up too easily. He had tried putting in the right order eight reasons why he would like an electric lawnmower, which he would, actually, because he nearly always got the job of mowing. Then he had to supply a slogan. He thought of, Don't let the grass grow under your feet, by a blank mower tomorrow. But he knew it was too long. He had heard Tess telling William that slogans had to be succinct. Jack went and looked this up in the dictionary, and realized at once that his slogan was nowhere near succinct. Another complication arose. It turned out that to enter a lot of these competitions, you had to sign and say you were over 16 years of age, and in some cases, 18. Occasionally, of course, you had to sign and say you were under these ages, but the prizes for this kind of competition were seldom very exciting. Even William, who was just 16, sometimes had to get his entries sent off by an adult. Nobody chose to have their entries sent in under Mr. Bagthorpe's name because nobody trusted him to hand over any prizes that might result. The young Bagthorpes, being of a suspicious cast of mind, even got their mother, when she obligingly sent off in her name, to sign a statement saying, I, Laura Fay Bagthorpe, hereby undertake that should any prize result from my sending off an entry for a competition sponsored by... Here a space was left for the name of the sponsor to be filled in. I will immediately pass it over to my son, daughter, Jack William Tess Rosie, delete as necessary, who is the rightful winner. Signed, Witnessed. William said he doubted if this document would hold up in a court of law, but Mrs. Bagthorpe was, after all, their mother, and he thought they could trust her better than anyone else. Jack trusted Mrs. Fosdyke, too, but none of the others did. Jack actually got Mrs. Fosdyke to send two entries off for him secretly. He preferred using her because she thought his entries were good and might win, whereas Mrs. Bagthorpe was unlikely to think this. He did not think it himself, and sent nothing else out. He really could not afford the stamps. Jack was depressed, too, at the thought of Uncle Parker being away for a whole fortnight. 
He was the only real ally Jack had, apart from Zero. We'll have to stick together, old chap, he told him. <clears throat> As it happened, <clears throat> it was not Jack and Zero at all who were to be the butt of the rest of the Bagthorpes during the ensuing fortnight, but the luckless Daisy, who was, after all, only four, and not entirely accountable for her actions. The first thing Daisy did after the departure of her parents in a flurry of gravel was not to burst into tears, as might have been expected. Mrs. Bagthorpe had indeed been fully prepared for this, and had bought a new toy for Daisy, to console her. Daisy waved till her parents were out of sight, and then, with the utmost self-possession, turned and went back into the house. Rosie herself, disappointed that Daisy had not cried, because she had looked forward to cuddling her, made to follow. Mrs. Bagthorpe stopped her. "'I should leave her alone a little while, dear,' she said wisely. "'I expect she'll go and have a little cry by herself somewhere, and then feel a lot better.' What Daisy was in fact doing was probably as therapeutic to her as a good cry. She was in the sitting-room, where Grandpa was dozing, writing her thoughts on the walls. She did a lot of this at home, the Bagthorpes knew, and was in fact encouraged to do it by Aunt Celia, who said she herself used to do it as a child and got slapped for it by Grandma. She, on the other hand, was liberally minded and believed in self-expression. The walls of the Parker residence were accordingly thick with Daisy's thoughts and slogans. Mrs. Bagthorpe had requested that she should discontinue this practice during her two-week stay with the Bagthorpes. Aunt Celia had promised she would have a word with Daisy about this. <clears throat> Though it is a pity, she had added, the child needs an outlet. Aunt Celia might have told Daisy, or she might have forgotten, but in either case Daisy was at present finding the first of what were going to be many more outlets. She used a different color for each different thought, and evidently considered these thoughts worthy of immortality, or at least some measure of permanence because she used indelible felt-tips to inscribe them. On her return, Aunt Celia said that she could tell in what order Daisy had written her thoughts by the way they came successively more complex and profound. <clears throat> First, then, according to Aunt Celia, she wrote, No parking, in red, by the china cabinet, and proceeded to state, I am a genius and always write, in purple, just by the television set. This infuriated Mr. Bagthorpe, who said he could not concentrate on watching his scripts. He said Daisy's statement was always with him, right in the corner of his eye. In the end, Mrs. Bagthorpe fetched an oil painting of some shaggy highland cattle out of the loft, and hung it over Daisy's thought. He reluctantly admitted that this was better, but not much. <clears throat> in green, by the bookshelves, occurred a more mystifying declaration. A Daisy is white and yellow... "'But not me, I hope.' This, Aunt Celia later explained, was part of a natural identity crisis that took place in children of Daisy's age. To this, Mr. Bagthorpe curtly replied that if Daisy was in two minds as to whether she was a flower or a human being, and he personally had his doubts about either, he recommended psychiatry, as he had been doing for years. Daisy was, he said, a psychiatrist's dream, and her casebook would probably make history and get published all over the world. Daisy next drew in cobalt blue what she maintained was a donkey, but could easily have been any animal that had five sticks for legs and no ears. Under it she wrote, 
far and away I wish do knock and enter. She had evidently lost her original train of thought halfway, and this was agreed to be the most obscure of her motifs, particularly taken in conjunction with the drawing. Even Jack used to sometimes find himself looking at it and wondering what it meant. The last, in Aunt Celia's judgment, most interesting thought, was in livid orange, and was simply, All the bees are dead. Aunt Celia hugged and kissed Daisy when she read this. I shall never ask her what it means, she told them all. It is a thought that lies too deep for words. When Mr. Bagthorpe saw Daisy's preliminary decorations of the sitting-room, his thoughts were evidently too deep for words as well, because it was some time before he got anything coherent out. Mrs. Bagthorpe tried to soothe him by saying that she had intended to have the sitting-room as well as the burned-up dining-room decorated before Christmas. "'No real damage has been done,' she said, to which Mr. Bagthorpe replied that considerable damage would be done to Uncle Parker's pocket, because the entire bill would be presented to him.' And that's the end of part one of chapter five of Absolute Zero. See you next time.